Welcome to episode 95 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. In this time of great challenges globally, we need more than ever to listen to the voices of wisdom and compassion. Today on the show, I'm speaking to the Reverend Tim Costello, one of Australia's best-known voices on social justice and global poverty. Tim was Chief Executive of World Vision Australia for 13 years and is currently the Executive Director of MICA Australia, as well as Co-Chair of the Charities Crisis Cabinet. In the episode, Tim reflects on his extensive career, on the role of faith and religion, the future of aid, the impact of COVID and the recent launch of the End COVID for All campaign. To find out more about End COVID for All and to add your support to the campaign, see the links in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Tim, thanks for speaking with me. Let's start by reflecting on your extensive career in the international development sector. What's your assessment of the state of the sector in recent years? Well, since the global financial crisis, the sector has really been struggling. Uh, Up till then, with uh, Make Poverty History, the Millennium Development Goals, the optimism that we can actually eradicate uh, absolute poverty, There was hope and uh, generosity and a wind in the sails. And uh, with the Millennium Development Goals to halve the number of absolutely poor by uh, 2015, we achieved it by 2010. And there wasn't just the sector, you know, donor governments and other factors that play China's rise, but people were feeling generous, positive, positive. 2008, the general, the uh, global financial crisis, uh, people turned inwards. They're turning inwards and saying, let's just look after ourselves, we're not responsible for others, has seen um, the sector really start to struggle, one, raising funds, and two, keeping its promises to the world's poor in terms of the programs they committed to do. So that has been a, a really dramatic change in the last decade. Do you think we've lost some of the optimism and the momentum that we once had? Yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, the uh, truth is that the world has been retribalizing profoundly and uh, that sense of um, compassion for our own and let's just look after our own, no responsibility for anyone beyond our shores, that's uh, uh, now too much of an ask, Uh really has become very uh, decided. When uh, I uh, am on an interview or walking in the street, if I had a dollar for everyone who said, Tim, we've just got to look after our own. We've got homeless here. We've got Indigenous problems here. We've got poverty here, all of which is true. I spent the first 20 years of my life working in domestic uh, poverty NGOs here in Australia. Uh, But it's like the optimism has become almost not just evaporating, but a, an attitude of nastiness saying, uh, well, we have to uh, set our poor against the world's poor and we can't do both. We don't set our poor against defence spending or negative gearing or capital gains tax or superannuation concessions, but somehow it's okay to set them against the world's poor. The truth is we have capacity to do both and the loss of optimism has seen us uh, withdrawing. Most dramatically in um, Tony Abbott's budget of 2014 where um, he smashed uh, our aid levels, government aid levels, that hurt a lot of development organisations in the sector. Uh, That 
budget, uh, 20% of its savings that Abbott made came from one area, uh, overseas aid, Australian aid, uh, which is less than 1% of the budget. So uh, that, that was a huge blow. Why do you think that is, that when the government needs to cut spending, it's aid expenditure that's the first to go? Well, Richard Nixon put it famously, there ain't no votes in aid. Here's the problem with aid, that the people whose lives it saves, the girls that are educated, the clean water that's given to people who are dying of, uh, of uh, a diarrhoea and other diseases, those people who benefit from aid don't vote here. And the uh, truth is, when I challenged Tony Abbott about this as Prime Minister, he said, oh, no, Tim, aid's only for good times. We're in bad times. We've got to balance the budget. Well, you know, if, if 2014 were bad times, Tony, welcome to 2020. Uh, so that, um, that uh, what would I call it, nativism that says, uh, you know, people might say, yes, we should be generous to the world's poor, but uh, if we offer you uh, more dollars for your local school, hospital or lower taxes here, what what are, you, what are you going to take? Uh, we'll cut aid to do it. Uh, that, that nativism started to prevail. You did mention the role of NGOs there, and you have had a very extensive career leading NGOs, including 13 years as the Chief Executive Officer of World Vision, uh, and you now lead MICA Australia. Before we get into MICA, though, I would be interested in your comments on what you see as the role of the international NGOs moving forward. Yeah, major NGOs are curious beasts in that they um, uh, at the both both one and the same time an international NGO, World Vision is working in over 80 countries, and a local NGO. Wherever they're working in those countries, it's uh, uh, 90% plus locals who are employed, who are setting the plans. Uh, so uh, you have this quite remarkable straddling of uh, you're an international NGO and certainly most of the finance comes from first world countries, uh, but it's directed and programmed by staff who are living in emerging countries or vulnerable countries. Uh, so, the, look, the real role of those NGOs is uh, not the big macro settings of um, trade and politics uh, and policy, but uh, uh, community empowerment to say to communities, it is your life, what are your priorities, we'll be here in the World Vision model 15 years. But you know the money's stopping and we are leaving and uh, you are to be uh, working towards sustainability. Now what are your priorities? Uh, health, education, clean water. Uh, but always when I was uh, leading World Vision, it's the same today, we would have a program called Citizens' Voice in Action, saying to poor communities, you're a citizen and you have a voice. Uh, why is World Vision building this school or this health centre? Who should build it? Well, they'd say it should be our government. Well, why isn't your government building it? Well, who knows where the funds uh, for health and education went, palaces, weapons, Swiss bank accounts. Well, you're a citizen. The deal is we'll build the school, but we'll track, tr train you to be able to track what was the government's educational budget for your region, to train you in tracking where that money went or didn't go, 
to then organise and remove those who have been corrupt because when we leave, who's going to keep maintain the school if you haven't uh, got your government stepping up and taking responsibilities? So INGOs were really about uh, community empowerment. That was the, the main thrust of them. When you put it that way, it really demonstrates how aid and development projects need to go hand in hand with advocacy and governance projects. Absolutely. Uh, The third pillar of uh, world vision is advocacy. So one is humanitarian relief, natural disasters. Uh, The second is development, a 15-year program there, but saying we will leave uh, uh, maybe before 15 years and you need to be sustainable. And advocacy, which says if it's going to be sustainable, people actually need to be a voice uh, and empowered and taking charge of their own both local, regional, national governments uh, that must serve them. Uh, And that's the advocacy task. You now lead MICA Australia. So can you start by telling us what MICA exists to do? MICA Australia exists for the world's uh, vulnerable and poor and it's an advocacy organisation. It's um, uh, funded by a a lot of the Christian faith-based charities with the Caritas, Salvation Army, uh, Baptist World Aid, World Vision, Tier Australia. And uh, we have just uh, run a campaign called End COVID for All. Uh, We had a full page in the Fin Review with 188 organisations, businesses, universities, everyone from in religious circles from Hillsong, to Islamic relief and focused on saying uh, COVID doesn't end for any of us till it ends for all of us because we're biologically connected. And that biological connection really requires us ensuring there is a vaccine for our poor neighbours. After all, New Guinea is only four kilometres across the water uh, from Australia and uh, we aren't safe. Whatever we think about our borders and bubbles, if uh, New, Papua New Guineans aren't safe, many of them get treated, of course, in Cairns and in Australia. Uh, so in COVID for all was to combat vaccine nationalism and to say uh, our borders might be shut but our hearts aren't shut and let's look beyond our borders because we live in an interdependent world biologically connected by an invisible virus and uh, we have to fundamentally see we are all in this together capital a for all not just uh, just not just australians as you mentioned there mica is a faith-based organization my question on that is why do we need another faith-based organization in the development sector and is that a question that comes up a lot for you yeah no look we need all sorts of organizations in the um, development sector often Uh, Secular Australians uh, labour under uh, an illusion that because they're secular, the rest of the world might be secular and therefore just a secular approach uh, makes sense. The rest of the world is profoundly religious. Uh, If you're going to get into the energy zone of community trust, community empowerment, you actually have to have a profound understanding of their religious worldviews. So... Uh, John Kerry probably put it best. He was Secretary of State uh, in the Obama administration and he said, if I had my time over again, I wouldn't study international relations, I'd study religion. He said geopolitics, uh, for good and ill, is driven by religion. 
Um, so when we in Australia hear people go, well, just drop that faith bit, that's not necessary. We'll just come up with secular technical solutions. It uh, is a little bit naive about where the communities you're working with are actually in their imagination, in their interpretation of meaning of life, in their uh, motivations for why they would challenge behaviour or uh, cultural attitudes that might entrench poverty. You actually have to have uh, that understanding of faith, that ability to say often, yep, we take that seriously, uh, rather than uh, simply a secular technical solution, which may seem totally common sense to most Australians, but actually doesn't work. Okay, but the End COVID for All campaign that Micro Australia has launched isn't overtly faith-based. Was that a deliberate decision? Well, the, the, this is the curious thing, even though Micro Australia uh, is faith-based, uh, most of what we do isn't overtly faith-based. <laughs> this is where it gets very confusing, I know, for people. Um, the motivation for a secular person might be universal human rights, which I share. The motivation for me, uh, putting that uh, in religious language, is that every human has dignity because I believe they, they are made in the image of God. Now, whether you describe it in secular universal human rights terms or in religious terms, when you're doing an end COVID for all campaign or any of the work we're doing, you're not out there proselytising. You're not advancing a faith position. You are actually casting a net to say people uh, of all faiths and no faith can join in this, whatever their philosophical starting point is, wherever they're coming from. Uh, so in COVID for all, uh, like all that we do, certainly had that, uh, that uh, wide net, inclusive net that it was throwing. And from my perspective, the End COVID for All campaign has been really well received uh, so far. How do you think it's been received? Yeah, I think it's been a very important campaign because um, the nativism that I talked about earlier yeah, that's really dominating the world. You think of America first, China first, Russia first, uh, Turkey first, uh, has seen us tearing up uh, global cooperation. We see how America withdrew from the World Health Organization, from the Paris climate change. Uh, so the sort of cooperative mechanisms that we had are uh, desperately needed in a time of a virus that... Uh, doesn't choose between races, genders, sexualities, uh, religious beliefs. Uh, it's a virus. Uh, that's why I think this has been well received, just to go, ah, of course, unless we end it for all, none of us are safe. Uh, we have to look beyond just our own shores, as important as it is to do everything we are doing here. So I think it's been well received for that reason. End COVID for All kind of falls into the category of some of those really well-known aid and development campaign slogans from over the years, like Make Poverty History or Build Back Better, which, which we often hear in the wake of a, a natural disaster. Is there a risk of campaigns like End COVID for All becoming very focused on the rhetoric and on building momentum, but not actually translating into any tangible action? Yeah, that's always a risk. Uh, look, the the truth is Make Poverty History was a movement 
that was uh, the wind in the sail of the Millennium Development Goals. Uh, so you actually had a global plan that uh, didn't totally succeed, but in terms of um, lifting people out of poverty and focusing on it was more successful than anything the world has ever seen. Uh, quite extraordinary to get 190 nations signed up, but you needed a movement and a slogan, Make Poverty History, to keep uh, keep the emotion and the gut going uh, around that uh, very technical set of goals that uh, the MDGs were. It's actually what we're lacking with the Sustainable Development Goals, the new uh, a global agreement that we've got. We, uh, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find too many who can talk about it, and we are lacking a movement with cut-through slogans to uh, engage the heart. Uh, look, end COVID for all also had... Um, uh, an invisible side to it, which was uh, visiting uh, mainly coalition uh, me members of parliament and talking about uh, not cutting the aid budget, in fact, increasing the aid budget uh, and seeking uh, some very practical inside work uh, while the outside public campaign is going on and giving cover for politicians who might, on aid, do something brave and uh, increase it, certainly not cut it, but cop it from, uh, well, let's say the Pauline Hanson-ites and others uh, yeah, in the Australian community who go, you don't dare spend a, a dollar outside uh, Australia. It's all about us. So there is uh, practical things along with the rhetoric going on. And can you tell us how those internal conversations are going? I mean, how many MPs are on board with at least not cutting the aid budget further, as you say? Yeah, no, they've been encouraging. And uh, uh, the fact that uh, in the week uh, leading up to the 19th of August when we had uh, lots of community events for In COVID for All, there was an announcement of $80 million for COVAX, ACM, that um, uh, vaccine that would be shared with our regional neighbours. The Prime Minister made that announcement. Now, normally uh, in the uh, uh, nativist climate of the world today, uh, all he needed to do was say, I'm protecting Australians and this is the deal I've done. The fact that he was actually saying no and this is going to our poor neighbours also was a sign that some of that uh, inside work is uh, bearing fruit. That's really encouraging to hear. I think especially in the lead up to the next election, right now is a really critical time for us to be pushing both sides of politics to make clear commitments on aid because historically aid hasn't been an election issue, has it? No, no, it's, um, you know, often up there as in the top ten as something we should do, but it doesn't have a what the pollsters would call salience and by salience they mean uh, emotional traction with voters. There's not many, even with strong convictions on aid, who uh, think about that as they cast their ballot. Um, so that's that's absolutely right. It is really hard to make aid an election issue. I've had Minister Alex Hawke on the show before where he said that aid was an election issue in the last election, but it, it is really difficult to give aid that that salience that you talk about. Look, it, it really is. The world is organised around national sovereignty and national borders. Our first duty of a government is to get 
won re-elected and to do so by looking after those who vote for them. Uh, thus, thus Richard Nixon's uh, adage, uh, there ain't no votes in aid. Uh, the uh, international um, agreements, whether Millennium Development Goals or Sustainable Development Goals, people sign up to, nations sign up to, but uh, to actually have them break through the consciousness and go have voters saying, how are we doing on that? Are, we're going to mark your electoral homework with how you've been doing on that. That is really hard to pull off. I think the other challenge with campaigns like Make Poverty History and potentially also End COVID for All is that they're so optimistic. And for the optimists, that's a great thing. But you get a lot of the critics coming out and saying, well, you can't make poverty history and you potentially can't end COVID for all, which for me raises a question about optimism. Is it practical to be optimistic about whether or not we really can make poverty history or end COVID for all? Yeah, no, I, I, I um, think the difference between an optimist, an optimist is just a preference, a wish, uh, and hope. Hope is grounded in reality and still hopes to change that reality. And I think if you look at what the Millennium Development Goals achieved, first time poverty has been put into a human rights framework and it was global poverty. Um, and uh, that was, it was uh, achievable because we dodged the philosophical arguments of West versus East, is it solidarity, is it individual rights, uh, uh, and all the philosophical uh, debates around human rights and just said, let's halve the number of kids uh, dying, uh, not getting enough calories a day. They, let's cut by two-thirds the number of women dying in childbirth. Now, whatever your philosophical starting point, East or West, for human rights, they were so concrete we actually pulled that off and made a huge amount of progress there. And uh, a wonderful book um, by a health professional um, Swedish guy called Factfulness. Hans, oh, I've just forgotten his surname. But Factfulness uh, actually shows that um, uh, we aren't just Pollyannaish optimists. The world, on every indicator, has been making progress in, in reducing violence, in cutting poverty, uh, in... Uh, reducing illness, well, a pandemic's come along to challenge that. The one outlier has been climate change. We haven't yet been making progress there. So uh, when people say, oh, it's just utopian, you're just an optimist, well, no, the facts tell a different story. Yes, Hans Rosling in Factfulness, that was a great book. How important is it for us to address the underlying issues that are giving rise to poverty? And what are those underlying issues? Is it consumerism? Is it capitalism? And, yeah, how important is it that we address them directly? Well, now you're asking really easy questions, aren't you? That, that, that is, um, uh, look, let me say uh, to debate, to avoid the debate of, you know, some very complex questions about, uh, you know, the achievements or failures of capitalism and is there any other system that we actually know can work? Uh, fascism didn't. Uh, communism that was uh, uh, a state-mandated one didn't. Um, what we certainly know is that 
where capitalism and trust of markets is checked by checks and balances that are transparent and accountable, we often call that democratic capitalism, um, you can engender a solidarity and a sympathy uh, that's really uh, important for looking at the fundamental fractures of inequality, of uh, racism, of the legacies of colonialism. Um, it's slow. It's a stop-start. But we, we have enough evidence to say that's the case. Of course, the challenge with China is China is effectively not a communist country but an authoritarian capitalist country. It now trusts the market uh, but in an utterly authoritarian way. And though that sort of authoritarian leadership, which we're seeing, I don't know, from Duterte in the Philippines to Bolsonaro in Brazil to uh, uh, President Trump and Erdogan and Putin, um, is now a sort of authoritarian nationalist uh, capitalism and we are tearing up international agreements which make it really difficult to deal with everything from terror to refugees or 65 million displaced people to climate change, which no national nationalist agenda can deal with. We actually need a, a vision of us having global solidarity to deal with these issues. And the times are against us on that one. We, we know how difficult uh, this is at the moment. And many would say, well, there you go. That's the failure of capitalism. Well, it might be that it's the takeover of capitalism by authoritarian nationalist, not by democratic uh, uh, countries. Uh, so that's, a, that's a, um, a complex one to argue. Okay, let's look to the future now to finish this interview. So the first question I want to ask you on that is, is 10 years from now, what do you expect the aid landscape to look like in Australia? And adjacent to that, what do you expect the role of NGOs to be in that landscape? You know, the, the ideal is for NGOs to be out of business uh, in terms of saying uh, communities should be living their own lives for themselves with accountable governments and good governance and the right policy settings, uh, accountability that's transparent and they don't need NGOs because of the uh, shocking vulnerability and poverty uh, necessarily doing that for them. That, that is the ideal. Um, I do expect there will still be uh, in 10 years NGOs because uh, all the trends that we've been talking about at the moment of this turning inwards uh, mean that uh, those countries may be landlocked with uh, aggressive neighbours without many resources to sell uh, will have terribly vulnerable poor populations uh, and without uh, still aid um, then far too many of their children will die uh, before the age of five of preventable diseases, of dirty water, of things which Bono calls stupid poverty because we know how to treat diseases, we know how to do clean water. So I do think in 10 years' time um, we, we still will find uh, NGOs operating. And my last question then is 
how in the midst of everything we've discussed, authoritarian leadership, a global pandemic, climate change, how in the midst of all that do you stay positive and optimistic about the future? Well, I think Hans Roslin's book, Factfulness, uh, is a, a reason that uh, uh, even against the um, uh, inability, say, to deal with climate change when the Republican Party in the US becomes the first party anywhere in uh, the democratic world to be officially climate change denial, denialist, how appalling in the in, indispensable nation, America, um, and if Trump's re-elected, they'll still be out of uh, out of uh, Paris and it'll be drill, baby, drill. Um, and I fear, I must admit, a bit for my granddaughter. Um, I, I think uh, even in that world, you have in the US, in states and cities, remarkable steps toward renewable energy going on despite the national leadership that's uh, there at the moment. That resilience of humans to try and go around government, some would say that's equally true here in Australia, and to get on with it, of businesses doing it. I mean, I'm quite struck that uh, in the last week, the National Farmers Federation, the IAG, the Business Council of Australia, um, just about every business group has come out and, and called for zero net emissions by 2050. Um, and there's our government who, you know, isn't, is not setting a target like that. It's, it's as if people do workarounds and that, that still gives me confidence and, uh, and hope and optimism. There's a lot of good people in the development sector and more broadly that give us hope and optimism. Absolutely. And I, I look at young people who often get a bad rap and I um, see remarkable commitment for a better world, uh, for facing uh, the issues, you know, we have to face, which is how do we reconcile um, with our Indigenous people? How do we have treaties that acknowledge what we know is the historical truth. Uh, I see young people with commitment toward that and uh, I don't lose hope. Thanks, Tim, for your time. A pleasure. 